The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Take a little time and stretch or adjust your body as you need to. have you all here in the building and on Zoom. Nice to see both Jessica and Lucy here online to help. And with uh, Lucy, will be available for the online small groups for anybody who wants to stay. And here in the room, we have Jenny and Ruth who will help us with the small groups if you want to stay at 11.45. It's a nice way to meet community members, but also... Um, it can be really useful, if not here at the center or online with a small group, but just to find your own friend who is actually interested in the practice to check in about what you're learning. Because the whole point with these teachings, as you kind of get with a guided meditation, you get some information, and then you have to put that information into practice. Right? It's not enough just to memorize it. Excuse me, one second here. It's not enough to memorize the teachings. The whole point of the teachings, you know, because some religious traditions, including Buddhism, you know, they want to put the teachings in a special box and, you know, as if the teachings, you know, the recorded teachings is going to protect us. No, you got to take them in, you got to make them real for you so that they lead to this kind of independent wisdom, not dependent on teachings, because you've used the teachings to get intimate, to see what's here and now in our own experience. And then that insight, that deepening of understanding isn't dependent on the teachings anymore, because now it's direct or immediate. That doesn't mean the teachings weren't important, because somehow we have to get out of the box of our, you know, whatever's been conditioned in through culture. And this is where we are now, having been talking about the three characteristics since January, uh, and the most subtle teaching, and I always feel like I need to give a little warning, that it's okay to, for sure, don't try to figure this out, the teachings on not-self or impersonal nature. It tends to can, for some, lead to like obsessing, as if thinking about it is going to make it make sense. You're, it's a skillful means. It's not meant to be some absolute truth when the Buddha talks about the impersonal nature, the absence of a fixed self, because it's so contradictory of our subjective, our sense of our subjective experience, because so clearly I'm here, and then you say, but the Buddha's not saying you're not here. The Buddha's saying it would be helpful to take a fresh look. This appearance that I'm here, because that's what we have. We have this experience, the appearance that I'm here, right? It appears to me that I'm here. Clear? That's true for you, I'm assuming. And 
the teachings, the Buddhist teachings on anatta or sunatta, sunatta usually gets translated as emptiness, and anatta as not-self or impersonal nature, or everything's a natural process, is to take a fresh look at this. <laughs> Siri's on board, I think. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I put in the chat, I mean in the document that's in the chat for those of you online, and uh, there is a Google Doc for all of you here in person. If you go to the calendar online, there's a Google Doc there, and there's probably 20 articles that are related to these teachings on the three characteristics that we've been going through since January. And I put a recent article today from Ajahn Buddhadasa. He's a quite well-known monk who died maybe 20... 30 years ago in Thailand, a, a Thai monk and very famous teacher in Thailand at the time, including having taught a number of Westerners who, was, who went out there in the 80s and 70s to practice with him. Swan Mok, even some Kamgam people have practiced at Swan Mok in Thailand, southern Thailand. Harlita, our chair of the board of directors, did a retreat when you were a younger person, way back when. Yeah, so it's a, kind of became a, a place for Westerners who were seeking some introduction or some introduction to Buddhism and meditation. They would go to Swan Mok there, that monastery that Buddhadasa started. And here's a wonderful book if you want to get into the greater depth of these teachings. It's called The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. Um, the Buddha's Teachings on Voidness. And uh, voidness is just another way to translate that word, sunata, that gets translated usually as emptiness. And it means, it isn't like a thing, oh, if only I could get myself to emptiness. So whatever those teachings on emptiness and not self, you know what they point to is this, this moment that we're already having, all of us, each of us right now, we're having a moment this moment is empty. It's just that the, the, our mind doesn't know that it's empty. Our mind thinks that there's something here that's not here. And so the practice is to realize that there's, that the something that we think appears to be here isn't actually here. So we have an insight into the emptiness. So we're having an insight to what we already know this, but we're learning something about this that we haven't seen or opened to before. We're realizing that this experience of me is empty of something. And we have always, because of our conditioning, presupposed there to be something here and now, like that this experience that I'm having refers back to this permanent sense of me. Right? Don't we have that kind of sense? And it's so pervasive, that habit that we got conditioned to have that we don't even notice we're doing it. Every single sense contact, sense experience, it always is framed in terms of this is happening to me. This belongs to me. This is about me. 
You know, even when we don't like what's going on, I'm the one who doesn't like that. I'm the one who wants to get away from that person. There's always this personal framing, always, or almost always, until we start to practice, and we realize that that habit of selfing, let's call it, that's also empty of self, right? So that's the key. It's not so much like even, you know, we can kind of neurotically think, oh, if I just stopped using personal pronouns, I guess I'd be enlightened. And you see that sometimes, like, even when I uh, give meditation instructions, you know, this is being known. You know, you don't say, I'm knowing this. So, oh, okay, I, I see. It's just all about getting rid of personal pronouns. No, it's, you can use personal pronouns, but you, whatever the thought is, you know, you, you're having an intense discussion with someone you love, like a partner or whatever, friends, sibling, you know, oh, you know, I, I really need you to get who I am. You know, you don't see me, you know, something like that. And that's okay. I mean, you might need to have that kind of conversation with one of your loved ones. It's like Buddhists have those kind of conversations with their loved ones. But hopefully with a lot of practice, we begin to see right there in that conversation where we're using, you know, personal pronouns, we're seeing it as a natural process. Yes, sometimes people have these kind of conversations with each other, and it feels like this, and it's like this, and it's empty of anything but this, right? So the emotions we're feeling and the sight we're seeing and the sounds we're hearing of each other's voices, all that's being known, but it's empty of anything else. And you might, some of you might even intuitively sense that right now, that this moment is what it is, but it's only what it is. It isn't more, it isn't something happening to me. And any of that thought that this is happening to me, this strange conversation or talk that Mark's giving is happening to me, it's just something being known. And, and you know you're kind of getting the sense of how to use these teachings when you begin to intuitively feel how much lighter, how much more space, just psychological space and freedom there is when we operate this way. This is a pragmatic, functional way to operate in the world. It isn't meant to be something weird. It's meant, all the teachings, the Buddha says this up front, the whole point of the teachings is suffering and the end of suffering. That's what I'm about. I'm not trying to tell people what the metaphysical truth is of, you know, the absolute reality of things. I'm not trying to kind of define things philosophically. I'm simply giving pragmatic teachings for people to address, address the deepest uneasiness in their hearts, actual uneasiness in our hearts. And it comes from this misperceiving, this misunderstanding that it's like a virus that we keep reinfecting each generation with. I think somebody, uh, you know, life, not just human life, but life generally on this planet, you know, which is the life we know, it, it depends on desire, right? I mean, that's how things 
that's the word we use. Like even an amoeba, when it goes in this direction instead of that direction, really simple creatures, there's, we could call that a desire, you know, it's desire to go this way and it's not going that way and it's probably senses something that if it goes this way it might get something it wants. Right? And that's true with us. And uh, somewhere along the line, I mean, this is just a story, but just to understand, like, well, if, there, if this appearance of a permanent me to whom this is all happening is just a habit, and a, a very heavy habit that we've sort of picked up and that keep reinfecting each other with, you know, why? Why did this happen? Well... One story, you know, just to kind of give us a story of why this happened is, you know, even, again, it's just a, even evolution is a kind of metaphor, but in that evolutionary process, when survival is equated with a sense of a me who wants to survive, it's like the survival desire on steroids. Once it feels like a permanent me is on the line, well, then I'm going to take much more seriously, you know, any danger or any threat to me reproducing myself through my offspring or all the other things that are part of the evolutionary process, right? So it might just be that, because, you know, we often equate survival as what life is about, but I don't know about you, but I'm interested in release, I'm not interested in survival. I mean, it doesn't take much spiritual maturity to realize that survival doesn't really do it for us because there's birth and then there's death. And there's just so much uncertainty and vulnerability that's not in our hands with life. It doesn't mean that I'm seeking out extermination or something like that. It just means that to have a life and to think it's all about survival is a bit of a setup disappointment when death comes or when loss comes, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, I put all my things in this basket that is a setup to begin with. We can't keep it. We can't keep life. We can't keep safety. So when we become a little bit more reflective about just the limitations of existence, birth and death, then we might be interested in things like ease and love. And as one tradition in Buddhism calls it, you know, what's left when we wake up is unstoppable compassionate action. What, what else would this living, breathing, moving, alive thing do? If I'm not neurotically trying to survive, to have more, you know, and it's so obvious, one of the Maybe the only positive thing about celebrity culture, you know, our obsession with celebrity, is to realize that people who seemingly have it all, beauty, wealth, popularity, or whatever, are miserable. It's helpful to see that. It's like it can remind us that, yeah, maybe it would be nice to have that body or that whatever, but they don't seem necessarily happier than me, you know? And that old, decrepit person who lives down the block it's always so cheerful, you know, it's like, what's that about? I mean, hopefully we have that. I mean, even our four-legged friends, when they're old and decrepit, you know, seem to be so much more at ease than people who have 
you know, these amazing cars and amazing cell phones and smart homes where your lights will go on when you tell them to and go off and turn the heat up and turn the heat down and, you know, make my bed more firm or more soft or <laughs> coffee turns on at the right time, just the way we like it and got our steamer for our non-dairy non milk and... But it doesn't make us happier, you know, it's just, in a way, all these dependencies that the self has, the sense of a me, I need this, I need that. And it goes the other way too, like, okay, I'm going to become a minimalist, but if we, if the self thinks minimalism is going to make me hap uh, self-happy, it's also the same, uh, it's the same trap where we presume there's a somebody back here who, when conditions are the way that I think they should be, then I'm going to really relax. And I'll have it, you know, it's like, I'll really be there in satisfaction. And, you know, satisfaction that will be lasting, because nobody cares about satisfaction that's ephemeral. So this is from that book, The Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. Heartwood is a uh, simile the Buddha uses, you know, he's talking about ignorance. It's one of the more famous discourses that got recorded, uh, not digitally, <laughs> orally for about five, six hundred years, and then eventually they wrote it down on palm leaves, and then over time, you know, on other sources. And then we have these teachings even now that got recorded. So anyway, there was this talk the Buddha gave on the Heartwood simile, and he said, it's like a person seeking real relief or seeking hardwood, like good lumber, the hardwood, and goes off into the forest and just brings back the twigs, you know. Like, and the, the equivalent for us would be, you know, seeking real peace, real relief from our suffering, but we all we do is we get fame, we get renown. So my dog likes me, my partner hangs out with me, you know. I'm it's something, but in spiritual terms it's just twigs. Right? Because whatever, you know, my cat might like me, but then when I won't let it out when it wants to go outside, it doesn't like me anymore. And it will actually kind of bother me. And, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Let me out. <laughs> so, and then, you know, just go, the simile just goes on. So somebody wants, oh, they realize, oh, having some fame, being liked, it's something, but it's not actually satisfying. It isn't dependable. So I'll go looking for something more. And it's just like, so you go, looking for more, eventually, you know, you want calm, or you want real understanding. But it isn't until you get the heartwood. And the heartwood really is this insight that nothing whatsoever should be clung to, needs to be clung to as I, me, or mine. That as humans, as a person, I can be completely functional, do what needs to be done without that. And he's talking about that teaching in this section. He writes, 
The saying of the Buddha that deals with the practice regarding sunyata, or emptiness, is the saying at the heart that is at the heart of Buddhism. It requires our careful attention. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. The Buddha himself declared that this was the summation of all the Buddha's teachings. He said that to have heard this phrase is to have heard everything you need to hear. To have put it into practice Practice is to have practiced everything you need to practice. <coughs> and to have reaped its fruits is to have reaped every fruit that needs to be reaped. Right? So nothing whatsoever needs to be clung to, should be clung to as I or mine. And he goes on to explain that the I, let's see here. So we need not be afraid that there's too much to understand. When the Buddha compared the things that he had realized, which were as many as all the leaves in the forest, with those that he taught to his followers to practice, which were a single handful. The single handful he referred to was just this simple principle of not grasping at or clinging to anything as being self or belonging to self. So being self is the I, and belonging to the self is the mind that belongs to me. And this is a reflection. It's not so much we can force this insight, but we can illuminate the opposite. You know, so we get the teaching. Now, maybe this afternoon there will be some reverberations. And you'll just be naturally interested in when there is that sense of a self constructed or present in my mind. Like, oh yeah, that was hurtful for me. This pain is mine. I'm hurt. This pain, this pain that I'm feeling is mine. And you'll see that. And then hopefully it will like, oh, that's interesting. Like there's another way of framing this. Because the teaching, remember, is a skillful means. Let me, so there is this sense of pain. You know, someone insulted us or whatever happened and it hurts. So we're not trying to pretend that that ain't true. But we're just reframing it. Okay, so what is it without that sense of a me? I feel pain. It's my pain. Okay, well then it's just this ache being known. It's the intimacy without the self-centered grasping. It's not denial. It's not repression. It's actually in the direction of exposure or vulnerability. Not... You know, sometimes people have the wrong idea of this, you know, the practices make us distant, give us some great distance from being a human being and all the messiness and pain and confusion that comes, just the territory of being in relationship with so much as a human, as any being probably. But it's really how to be in relationship. You know, it's so interesting in your personal, especially the significant relationships in your lives with parents and siblings and lovers and colleagues and stuff. And just to, you know, so much personal and neurotic tendencies get triggered in our relationships with each other. And we can think that practice 
has should has this therapeutic side, which like I want to be able to relate more and more in a wholesome way, which is really good. I mean, I'm totally for that for myself. I do want to be more skillful in my relationships. But in terms of our deeper practice and Buddhist practice, learning how to be skillful in our relationships is a support for this insight. And it's and the insight will support being more and more skillful in our relationships. But we can sense the impersonal nature of our neurotic behavior, and we can sense the impersonal nature of our very skillful behavior. And both would be really good practice. So when you're being neurotic and unskillful, then your Dharma practice is to see how that unskillfulness is empty of self. It's just what it is, unskillful, in the sense that you will be leading or causing, setting emotion, harm for yourself and others when you're being, that's what it means to be unskillful. You're setting emotion harm for yourself and others. But that's also empty. But it doesn't mean the karmic implications aren't there. But seeing it as empty, sensing it as empty, as nature, like I'm being a jerk here, given how I'm conditioned, it can't be other than what it is. It actually helps us to take responsibility for the damage, the unskill, you know, the, ca- the reverberations of being unskillful. You know, if I'm taking it personally, then I need to like rationalize why I'm being a jerk, or I have to blame I'm a jerk because this person treated me this way, so I guess they deserve it, or I'm going to beat myself up for being a jerk. None of that actually helps me make amends, helps me learn how a better way of handling situations like that. So the self-centeredness doesn't, is never part of becoming a more skillful person. That self-centeredness is always a cause for more stress. That's, I mean, it's like when there's self-centeredness, there's that burdensomeness of our heart. Without that self-centeredness, this is for us to realize for ourselves. What, and this could be the topic for the small groups this morning, if you're going to stay, or for those who aren't going to stay for the small groups, just your own personal reflections within your own heart, or find somebody in your life to have this conversation with, where have you experienced moments of awakening? You know, I know it sounds a little grandiose, but where have you experienced moments where your heart, as Ajahn Chah defines it, heart free of grasping, heart free of selfing, self-centeredness? But not self-centeredness as some contrivance, like, okay, I'm going to be, you know, not self-centered now. Because that can be just as much a self-centered strategy, like, I really want to look like I'm not self-centered. That's me, by the way, being not self-centered. Right? In case you missed it, you know, it's like me saying, oh, okay, today's Sunday, it's time to give a talk. I'm going to give a talk as if I'm not there. You know, I'm just going to be nature up there in front of the room. It'll be great. And God, I, I hope I don't start taking it personally when I'm giving that talk. 
you know. And it's, it's like, uh, so the way to practice is, it's more like hands off where you're just, we're just observing what's happening. And when there is the neurotic selfing going on, we see that as being empty. And when there is a, you know, beautiful skillfulness going on, we see that skillfulness is not self. It's nature. It's just how it is. It's just that experience of being skillful, appropriate, navigating the moment with a lot of wisdom. But there, we don't have to impute that somebody's doing it. And somebody should feel pride. And if there is pride, that's also just what that is. Oh yeah, sometimes that emotion of pride arises and it feels like this. And that's really the practice. And mostly we use the teaching to illuminate selfing. Because if we use it to create a me that I want to become, then that's more selfing, isn't it? Only a self wants to become empty of a self. Right? That is only a thought that would arise from wrong view, a self-centered view. God, I can't wait until <laughs> I'm free of self. From our self or egoic point of view, which is what is the frame that is normally operating for us, what we should aspire to do from an egoic point of view is want to see things as they are. So we accept the teaching from the Buddha as a counterweight to our programming to take things personally, right? So we're going to keep taking things personally until we get a teaching like this that challenges our programming. We don't even see our programming until we get a teaching on not-self. And then we realize, oh, that's true. I, everything does look like it's about me. It refers to me, you know? Now I can look at it because I have this teaching on emptiness, the emptiness of self. So in that way, the teaching is meant to be functional, not something that a self clings to or a self aspires to, but we use it to illuminate the present moment. Oh. oh. And then it helps ease our way, like when we start having a more naturalistic sense of the present moment, how it's just stuff happening, being known, impersonal. And then, then we have this very uh, faith-inspiring thought, like, oh, so many humans have had this insight, and I'm so glad it's been mapped out by people before me. I'm not the, you know, this isn't personal to me. This is what people have been waking up to and uh, in this article, um, in the book, Ajahn Buddhadasa just goes on to talk about selfing is the one and only psychological, spiritual disease that we have, right? And in different spiritual traditions, they talk about it, you know, being separate from God or different, you know, and you can choose your, your map that works best for you. But Buddha, Buddhism, you know, talks about things in naturalistic terms. And it, and it doesn't impute anything that isn't immediately here and now. We just, we're really aligning, we're using these teachings to align with what's here and now, and not to imagine things are more than what's here and now. 
It's just what's here and now. And then we trust the kind of freedom that begins to arise as we practice. Just more and more space. Yeah, Leah. Um, so when we're thinking about our nervous system and trauma and how um, on a cellular level we're creating like neurological pathways and that is always vibrating, right? And even passed down generationally. Can you speak to how what you're talking about, like the self and no self, apply to just our nervous system reaction. Yeah, thank you, Leah. And I'll repeat it for those of you online, although hopefully you heard some of that. But yeah, this person was asking about the trauma. And I mean, this is the conditioning process. And for people who've had more extreme experiences, especially painful experiences, then there, a groove gets cut. Habit gets formed. Now, in Western world, we think about materialism sort of being the lead, but in the East, we think about the mind taking the lead and the body, the brain, being the reverberation of the mind. But in any case, the point Leah's making is really important to understand, which is the grooves that exist, the tendencies, the latent tendencies, deserve our respect because they're very entrenched. And so we, part of our patterns is a totally understandable but inefficient way to protect the sense of a self, the appearance of a self. And this sense of a me doing my best to survive psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, right? It's teetering. It's just like holding itself together. And that desperation makes the, that system more dependent, more and more dependent on the ineffective, inefficient systems that help hold it all together. So when somebody has a lot of trauma, the person gets dependent on whatever keeps them somewhat safe from the trauma, even though if the pattern of creating some safety itself becomes so oppressive, right? So heavy. To have to disconnect from the present moment where the reverberations of the pain are, because where else would they be? So we disconnect from the body, for example, from that lived experience of body because it's a dangerous place, because it's there in the energetic body where we feel the reverberations of unresolved pain. So, and it's kind of like, this is a, a good example, actually. So even those of us, all of us to some degree, you know, have some trauma, and some people have a lot more. And in some ways, you know, I think this is a Buddhist idea, even if somehow we were able to heal a lot of the trauma from this life, that there's not really boundaries or separation from our collective trauma whether you think of that as ancestral trauma or just the, the pain, the reverberations of pain and oppression and injustice and suffering that we're all part of, we're all the continuation of. 
So we don't want to think about the spiritual path as getting to the end of this healing. The spiritual path in the deeper sense is how to be free when there's this much brokenness. How to be connected and engaged and unafraid when it's like this. That's really the practice. And then we really start to understand how this not-self-teaching, because it's the only way. It's like, when we think about those archetypes of compassion, like we have some Kuan Yin statues in the building, uh, it's a archetype that developed in the centuries after the time of the Buddha, just to represent uh, this fearless, responsive compassion, completely fearless, all in, not holding back, not afraid. And that's what we're uncovering. But it really comes from emptiness. It's like one phrase coming out of the tradition, the winds of circumstance, all causes and conditions, blow through emptiness. Whom can they harm? So when we're not locating all that tenderness, all that brokenness, all that pain, all that rage, all that deep longing and loneliness, when we're not attributing that to a self, our self or another self, then it's just that brokenness. It's just that, I mean, some of you have had this with grieving. It's a good example because it's, and maybe I'll end here, because grieving is a pretty common experience for human beings, right? Even the young ones in the room or online, right? There's loss, loss of a friend, loss of a relationship, loss of a pet, loss of a grandparent, parent, a lover, whatever. And uh, we get moments in the grieving process where there's grieving, there's that powerful movement of sadness, of loss, the real pain of loss, but there isn't anybody locating it anywhere. And then in those moments, and it may only be a second or two, it's very interesting if you would ask yourself or ask somebody experiencing that, it's like, is this grieve, grieving you're feeling? Is it painful? Or is it pleasant in a weird way? They would say both. Have you had that experience where when grieving is moving, but there's no resistance to the pain of loss. It's just moving. It kind of feels good. And it might even feel like your heart's cracking open. I mean, it can feel viscerally be felt in really intense ways, but it feels good that it's moving. You know, we say, we have a phrase sometimes we use, it hurts so good. <laughs> and it's like that, this, uh, this sort of wisdom and compassion is a little bit like that. And of course, there's so much more to say to that comment, Leah. But we have to leave it here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.